This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Fighting in a World on Fire, The Next Generation's Guide to Protecting the Climate and Saving Our Future by Andreas Malm, adapted for a younger audience by Jimmy and Lewin Whips. Young people are inheriting a world of climate catastrophe. As Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for the Future movement have made clear, solutions offered by adults are far too little, far too late. The measures and unenforceable international agreements won't halt our reliance on fossil fuels or take the drastic steps humans need to take in order to keep our planet livable. In this adaptation of Andreas Malm's best-selling book on the need for a bolder, more confrontational climate justice movement, these urgent questions are brought to the most important audience of all, those who are growing up in a world on fire. Fighting in a World on Fire by Andreas Malm, adapted for a younger audience by Jimmy and Lewin Whips. Out now from Verso Books and available at versobooks.com. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The war on terror has long had a sort of unreality about it that I've struggled to put my finger on. Ever since George W. Bush responded to 9-11 by both announcing the launch of an endless global war and encouraging Americans to, quote, get down to Disney World in Florida, it was clear that the empire was entering a new and strange moment. The war on terror has for two decades been, simultaneously, foundational to what the United States is and strikingly absent in so many ways from American life and politics. In Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America, anthropologist Nadia Abu Alhaj has written one of the most important books about this new era of American militarism. And Abu Alhaj is my guest today. While it may seem as though Americans pay scant attention to our country's constant overseas wars, Abu Al-Hajj identifies the figure of the traumatized American soldier and the injunction that us mere civilians support our troops as having become key ways in which Americans see and interpret our never-ending armed conflicts. In other words, This is the story of the development of a profound common sense, the unseen ideological foundation of American militarism. American civilians, figured as innocent and naive to the evils of the world, are enjoined to thank our troops, valorized as super-citizens, for their service and to defer to their account of war because the troops' traumatized positionality means that they alone can truly understand and thus speak to the reality of war. This, Abu al-Hajj shows, has become a, or perhaps the key tool, in making the American people quiescent sub-citizens who will not challenge this new American militarism that has accompanied the war on terror. It's a brilliant and complex argument, and we're discussing it in two episodes. 
In this first episode, we discuss how anti-war veterans and psychiatrists during the Vietnam War era developed the idea that U.S. troops were traumatized by perpetrating atrocities and other forms of violence against Vietnamese people, something they called post-Vietnam syndrome. We then follow the story through the rise of Ronald Reagan in a conservative militarist politics that redefined post-Vietnam syndrome as Vietnam syndrome, which came to mean Americans' dangerous opposition to wars abroad. Meanwhile, the feminist anti-rape and anti-incest movement and the conservative victims of crime movement redefined and made salient the figure of the blameless victim. And then we trace the development of the fields of psychiatry and psychology, which moved away from psychodynamic therapies to a biomedical model. With ongoing revisions to the DSM and its definitions of PTSD, increasingly defining the traumatized subject as the victim of a discrete, horrible incident that happened to them, not a condition afflicting someone who had done something bad to others. We finish the first part of this interview by discussing how understandings of and treatments for PTSD were deployed and then modified as the war on terror was initiated and then ground on over time. As the wars dragged on, the idea that soldiers were traumatized by what they had done reemerged, this time in the guise of what's called moral injury. But the political anti-imperialist critique that had accompanied post-Vietnam syndrome was long gone. In this new framework of moral injury, soldiers were not traumatized by their acts of violence because they were partaking in a murderous imperialist war. Instead, American troops were people of a heightened moral sensibility, traumatized because that strong moral code had encountered evil in the world. In the era of an all-volunteer military fighting ceaseless wars, caring for and deferring to the traumatized soldier has become a core facet of force protection on two levels. Most basically, it is operated to ensure that soldiers are healthy enough to redeploy time and again. More profoundly, it ensures that the American people stay focused on our troops and their well-being, instead of questioning American empire or considering the people on the receiving end of American military violence. Next episode, we'll be discussing the contours of this new American militarism and the cult of troop veneration, and how it all hides in plain sight to reproduce and protect American militarism. Before we get to this interview with Nadia, please take a moment to support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. You might ask yourself, why should I support The Dig? The Dig is doing just fine. It's true. Listener contributions allow us to put out this podcast every week with no paywall so that everyone can listen regardless of your ability to pay. But we, in fact, do need more funding, not only to ensure the pod's long-term viability, but also to make more great content for you. We are right now about 15 patrons short of our goal of 40 net new patrons this month. Please help us get there. We are very close to rolling out this exciting new project called The Dig Presents, which will be regular, perhaps monthly, special narrative segments exploring the sort of subjects we discuss on The Dig through storytelling. Think This American Life, but more artistically experimental and with better politics. These are going to be excellent and also expensive. 
What's more, a contribution of any amount at all, any amount at all, gets you access to our wonderful weekly newsletter by email. And a contribution of at least $10 a month gets you a book or books, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug delivered to your doorstep. Please take a quick moment, contribute what feels right now, and help us meet our monthly goal. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And if you don't believe me that our newsletter is great, you should check them out at thedigradio.com. They're available to read alongside the entirety of our vast archives. And speaking of vast archives, if you like this interview, check out my past interviews with Catherine Lutz, Spencer Ackerman, and Jeannie Moorfield. Okay, here's part one of my two-part interview with Nadia Abu al Haj, a professor of anthropology at Barnard College and Columbia University, and co-director of the Center for Palestine Studies. She is the author of Facts on the Ground, Archaeological Practice and Territorial Self-Fashioning in Israeli Society, The Genealogical Science, The Search for Jewish Origins and the Politics of Epistemology, and the book we're discussing today, Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America. Nadia Abuelhaj, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your book makes a really brilliant argument about, about how the suffering of American troops, their trauma, became the primary way that Americans think about and interpret the United States' state of never-ending war. And it's a way of interpreting American warfare, and I think this is really critical, a way that functions to exclude and foreclose all sorts of other ways of interpreting American warfare. And we're going to get into a lot of history in detail. But to start, what is this culture of troop veneration and, and deference? And how has it come to operate in the way that it has? Some listeners might not even recognize its existence because it's become such a common sense form of knowledge. It's a barely contested premise almost of just simply being an American. So I think it, I mean, it has a long and meandering and probably very complicated history from the post Viet. American War in Vietnam era, which is where I begin to locate it. The short version of it will be would be that in the contemporary moment, think about how much talk about the war, the post 9-11 wars gets framed by the call that we can't, we can't make the mistakes we made during and in the aftermath of the war in Vietnam, in which troops were, uh, returning troops or veterans were disrespected, they were spat on, they were accused of being baby killers, and that that had all sorts of consequences for their mental health. So there's this constant iteration of our engagement with American military personnel and veterans is haunted by the American war in Vietnam. And rather than being haunted by it, what I show in the book, or what I try to argue, is that whole structure of kind of deference to and respect for the American military really begins with the conservative reconstruction of the war in Vietnam and a a kind of reconstruction of American interventionism and militarism abroad. But the basic premise is this call, which is support the troops, or among liberals and progressives, support the troops whether or not you support the war. And that's really the lingo that is so taken for granted that nobody really seems or rarely do people seem to stop and say, what do we mean by support the troops? What would that entail? 
What might it not involve? What does that have to say about the possibility for political critique and argument, even in conversations with military personnel or veterans? So whatever that slogan means, it carries with it this entire kind of common sense about citizens' obligation towards those who, quote unquote, volunteered for the military. One last question before we get into the history. You write, quote, Many scholars, journalists, and ex-soldiers have argued not simply that the American public is disengaged, but also that the war on terror is absent from American consciousness. That is an accurate description only if one presumes that the returned soldier has nothing to do with the war. The figure of the traumatized soldier and veteran is very present to the public. Perhaps, one could say, from an American point of view, he is the war. What if this incessant demand that attention be paid, that we must do a better job of recognizing and caring for the troops, is among the incitements to American militarism in helping attach the American public to the virtue of the soldier and thereby to the project of the war? To just finish out laying out your, your overall argument before we get into the history, how, how does this figure of the traumatized troop displace all these other forms of attention to and then acknowledgement and judgment of American war? And how how then does the, the very notion that Americans are not really paying attention to the war, a reality that is itself, to the extent that it's true, beneficial to the war machine and constituted, I think, through the culture of troop veneration, how does that then come to function as a rationale for yet more troop veneration? So first of all, right, I, I, I'm starting by saying something that is probably counterintuitive, because the general conversation, of course, is that these wars are barely present in the American public sphere. And in many ways, of course, that is true. I mean, I even know that when I teach, I'm not sure how many students of this generation are fully conscious of the extent of military intervention that is ongoing. But if there seems to be very little coverage of the wars themselves, what struck me starting very early in the war 2004, 2005, is this increasing presence of this figure of the traumatized soldier. The soldier, he is everywhere. And I use the masculine pronoun on purpose, even though I know not all uh, troops are male. Er, you know, TV shows, it's become a kind of background figure, not even in, even in TV shows where the focus isn't on the soldier. TV shows, literature, journalism, this figure is everywhere. It displaces all other discussion, I think, in, diff in particular ways. When it's tethered to the call that you must support the troops, right, then this figure of the traumatized soldier, which is the figure of someone suffering for having, quote-unquote, stepped up and served, which is the language often, the call, there, there's, a both, there's a kind of rhetoric and call to pay attention to the trauma of the soldier, right? Whether it's, again, their kind of omnipresence in media and popular culture or in journalistic and other accounts. And that displaces the conversation about anything else in complex ways. One, everything else just isn't even present. This is what so much of the coverage is about. But B, if the primary response has to be a responsibility towards this soldier, what it comes to silence or make very difficult to consider is, so what, what is the military doing? who is on the receiving end of this violence? In other words, who are the real victims here? And what is that conversation that needs to be had? We don't have that conversation. We have very, or we have very little of that conversation because so much of the attention, whether it's from the right wing, which is on a more heroic 
version or from sort of liberals and progressives, which is on the soldier who is now made to suffer for having gone off to war, the attention remains focused on this figure, this particular citizen who is kind of both ideal and heroic and suffering all at the same time, right? The argument about inattentiveness, I think, plays into the both the focus on the soldier and a kind of rhetoric about, quote unquote, civilian responsibility towards the soldier, which is the civilian here ref- refers to the American citizen who does not know war and who has not gone to war, which is a very particular understanding of a civilian, because civilians generally are those in war zones who are not combatants. Their inattentiveness becomes another piece, I think, of this architecture of having to support the troops. You didn't step up, they did. You don't even care enough to pay attention. There's this whole trope that comes out of one of the places it's in, but it's everywhere, is Billy Lynn's novel, um, The Long Half of Time Walk. While we were fighting the war, you were shopping at the mall, right? So in a, in the inattentiveness is an accusation. And it's an accusation of civilian, quote, American civilian, which really is the public, selfishness, kind of narcissism, in contrast to soldiers who, quote unquote, stepped up and served. And so if anything, that kind of rhetoric, make the demand then becomes even more intense that, well, you owe these other citizens something because they went for you, right? While you went on with your life as if nothing was happening. Yeah. I mean, ironically, George W. Bush, I think it was like soon after 9-11, urged Americans to go shopping with their families. Right, to go to the mall. And I think obviously that's probably the origin of this accusation, right? We're going to go to war, but your life is not going to be disrupted. But then it comes back, not, I mean, for Bush, it was this bizarre patriotic call, go on with life. They will not, quote unquote, disrupt our way of life. But it kind of circles back as an accusation against the so-called civilian that is stereotyped, I think, in a very particular way. And I guess that would be one thing I would add, which is there's a lot of both scholarly and public discourse about the stereotyping of the soldier. You know, often in the in the kind of Rambo-type image, but I think that that's anachronistic. Um, either the Rambo-type image or the soldier who's always traumatized or the potential for violence and domestic violence, although I think the actual image is more complex. But there's a very strong um, stereotype of this so-called civilian citizen, which is a combination of ignorance and selfishness and perhaps narcissism and innocence, right? And innocence not as a positive problem, but as an accusation. You got to go on with your life protected from these horrors because other citizens stepped up and served. And that creates a whole atmosphere in which the possibility of robust political criticism gets diluted in important ways because it always has to focus on and begin from an obligation to American troops. Let's go back to half a century ago when a very different conception of the traumatized soldier was being created. The the Vietnam vet at the time, in in image and reality, was often a protesting vet. And it was those anti-war veterans alongside anti-war psychologists who, in the early to mid-70s, established the concept of post-Vietnam syndrome. You write, quote, As initially framed, the trauma of American veterans centered on perpetration, not victimhood. Psychiatric discourse and radical politics, healing and anti-war activism— were cut from the same cloth. 
recognizing the trauma of American troops in the late 1960s and early 1970s did not require denying or sidelining the harms they had wrought on Vietnam and its citizens, imperial harm that expanded into Laos and Cambodia as the years wore on. You continue, quote, perpetration and not victimization was seen to be the cardinal reason for the post-war suffering. And interestingly, other scholars prior to your book have seen the Vietnam War era as the moment when psychiatry helped give, quote, birth to a moralist anti-politics of trauma and victimhood. But the actual history is quite to the contrary. What was post-Vietnam syndrome? And how did it emerge from from this anti-war milieu? So post-Vietnam syndrome emerges in the late 60s through the mid-1970s, and it emerges out of the work of a combination of veterans, Vietnam veterans against the war, so anti-war veteran activists, and radical psychiatrists who come to work with them. So to start with, the kind of military is reporting very low psychiatric casualties at the front. There was this report, somebody goes out in 68, he spends a year in Vietnam, he says there are very little psychiatric casualties. They think they've learned the lessons of the previous wars, both shorter tours of duty, tours of duty were never more than a year. And also, if there are symptoms, treat close to the front, treat immediately and send them back to the front. In other words, don't let it fester into a big traumatic problem. So, but what begins to become apparent on the quote-unquote home front, when veterans return, are, are um, people who are being who are actually as psychologists or psychiatrists are working with Vietnam veterans, largely in the VA, but also another. They're really running into a lot more trauma than anybody else than the military was predicting, and in particular, they're running into a lot of incidents of people narrating being. I don't know that they would use the language of trauma, but narrating that they're suffering, that feeling guilty for what they did, for having participated in massacres, for having raped women, for having stood by while their, you know, platoon massacred civilians and they didn't step in, et cetera. So on the one hand, you have this kind of psychiatric world that is beginning to encounter this. And at the same time, you have Vietnam veterans against the war who are themselves telling those stories and they're telling them to themselves, and they developed these rap groups, you know, kind of modeled on consciousness raising groups of the feminist movement or, right, black consciousness, where they discuss their experiences of the war and their shame and their guilt about having participated in this project that they came to understand as a kind of racist imperial war. And certain psychiatrists start particip- are invited to participate in these rap groups, not as like the archetypal medical figure, but as one of the members of the group who can help these veterans now process their grief and their guilt, et cetera. And so really the notion of post-Vietnam syndrome, which was first named by Chaim Shetan, um, who was a, a New York City psychoanalyst, was to describe this phenomenon of basically what it means to suffer from having been a perpetrator, and not just a perpetrator, but a perpetrator of mass atrocities on the killing fields of Vietnam. So trauma then, it was a trauma syndrome, and trauma was understood to be the result of moral transgression with which people could no longer live once they came back to the US and kind of exited that atmosphere in which this kind of violence had become the norm. 
So they were really grappling with perpetration, with guilt, and they were grappling with it, both the psychiatrists and psychologists and the veterans, at the same time as they were organizing and protesting the war. And those two things were tethered to each other. There was a profound sense that you couldn't heal from the war without engaging in anti-war politics, because what you were traumatized by was a po the political act par excellence. You were traumatized by having sent to war by the U.S. state, right? And this is a form of real guilt contrasted against some form, some sort of neurotic guilt. Right. So the concept of real guilt, which Robert J. Lifton, one of the key figures in this, uh, develops in relation to post-Vietnam syndrome and then what comes to be called PTSD uh, of the Vietnam veterans, the, different, the issue about real guilt is this isn't some psychoanalytic conflict about, so for example, when uh, survivors of the concentration camps, when people like um, Henry Crystal or Niederland was, were treating them in the 1960s, they often experienced guilt. But it was the kind of guilt, it was guilt not actually born of something they had done, but of fantasies or of identifications, right? It was a psychoanalytic concept of guilt, which really wasn't about having actually done something in the world. So-called survivor's guilt. Right? They didn't, they weren't the Nazi guards. It was called survivor's guilt, right? This is a very different iteration of survivor's guilt because it's saying uh, Lifton draws on Martin Buber's notion of real or ontic guilt, which is the guilt born of having violated an order of the human world. So the point about real guilt was the acknowledgement of actually having perpetrated harm on other human beings, right? That's not a displacement of some other psychic conflict. That is actually the cause of suffering. And then the flip side then becomes in some sense, to repair the self, one has to participate in repairing the world, right? That one's obligation then extends beyond oneself to that world, and that's part of the healing process. To recuperate, in effect, a different kind of self, right? By making amends in the world. And that took the form of anti-war, very, you know, anti-war activism, ending the war in Vietnam, and of ending it not just, although clearly, so that more American soldiers would not suffer what they did, but of ending it because it was understood to be a fundamentally imperialist and racist war that was unjust. I think it's important to, to pause here just to emphasize that, that atrocities were by no means the exception in Vietnam, but but really the rule, and that there was that, that there was nothing that exceptional about My Lai, for example. And you cite Nick Terse's excellent and very extraordinarily disturbing to read book here, uh, "Kill Anything That Moves." Right. I think that, and so Milai, and I think that was part of, so Robert J. Lifton gives a narrative account of how he came to understand the trauma of Vietnam vets in the following way. A, through his participation with these, in these rap groups, where he really heard the stories and listened to veterans narrating their own experiences and therefore their own guilt and their own conflicts, etc. And B, looking into the massacre at Milai. And what he came to understand was Milai may have been along, you know, at the extreme end of a spectrum. But he basically, atrocities were what Nick Turks and Lifton both in different ways called standard operating procedures in Vietnam, right? That the structure of military, the structure of how the military understood what a win was, that you would have to do body counts, the logic of having to, I mean, the logic of having, of the inability to separate 
the civilians from the guerrillas and therefore creating free fire zones. It was all structured in such a way that it was massively brutal as a war. And these were not exceptions, right? There was endless, you know, besides killing civilians, rape, cutting off ears and putting them on bayonet, bayonets, you know, dismembering bodies. This was a very common practice in a war in which, you know, the military, you know, command structure, you know, was not very robust, but also the kinds of what counted as a sign that you had done well as an officer in the field was really tied to body counts, right? And that's what the Vietnam veterans, sorry, were beginning, were also arguing, which was to understand these as exceptional events. This is an instance of a war crime was to misunderstand what was unfolding on the killing fields of Vietnam. Yeah, and, and you cite this fascinating analysis from Sartre that under colonial rule, there was exploitation and expropriation going on that actually required not killing everyone amongst the colonized, but that once, but he says that genocide, quote, appears as the only possible reaction to the rebellion of a whole people against its oppressors. Right. And I cite South because Robert J. Lifton really relies on that article, which is called On Genocide. And South says something appears, what, what is distinctive about the American war in Vietnam, although it's sort of built into the project, is these anti-guerrilla wars, right? The idea that you have to kill, you have to drain the water to kill, I can't remember what the expression is, to kill all the fish, but that the U.S. also had very little financial or economic interests in Vietnam. They did not need to sustain a labor force. This was a Cold War project that was really about this game between the Soviet Union and the U.S., right? And so there was nothing to stop that. There was no value in the population that needed to be sustained. And Lifton draws on that to say that this is what makes it an inherently a genocidal project. A major through line across this, this U.S. culture of troop veneration is this notion that Vietnam veterans were disrespected, specifically spit upon after they returned home. And so... Today, we must thank you for your service and, and defer to vets as a form of, of recompense. And I just read actually this morning in the Providence Journal a, an opinion piece recounting the very same sort of stories. But not only have any such infamous spitting in incidents never been documented, the reality is that vets were in fact active, high-profile figures in the anti-Vietnam War movement. How was this myth created? And, and and what purposes has it served? So I don't know how it was created, but it is a trope that becomes more and more powerful starting in the late 70s and through the 80s. And I think that's right. For one thing, it depends on the kind of language of, quote unquote, a civil military divide that people talk about a lot today. But it misunderstands fundamentally the dynamics of anti-war politics of the era. So let me just say a few words about that before coming back to what purpose it serves. Look, were most Vietnam veterans politically active against the war? No. Was the largest group of incredibly vocal and organized veterans, anti-war veterans? Absolutely. Did they become an important part, not just part of the movement, but in some sense, a, you know, at moments, a real leadership part of the movement because they couldn't be told by the conservatives, well, 
you're some hippie who never went off, right? They couldn't be dismissed as easily. And this language of veterans coming home and being spit on or called baby killers by anti-war activists seems to want to hold on to a divide in which the assumption is there was no political, not just political critique, but political activism among veterans in that era. And what was distinctive about the the period of the war in Vietnam is that really there was a a massive and powerful anti-war movement by veterans and in fact, you know, soldiers. There were there was dissent in the ranks, both formal, there was fragging that is very really has a distinctive history in the question of the role of of military personnel, ex-military personnel in anti-war politics. So to begin with, it rewrites that history in fundamental ways. How, was there never anybody who spit on somebody or called them baby killer? I don't know. Maybe there was, there probably was. Was it really this common trope is really the question. And all sorts of people have written about that. It becomes really important though, as an accusation again, and it's an accusation against citizens who are presumably civilians. It's a very important accusation because it's the counterpart to the call to support the troops and thank you for our service. The issue is, this is what we did then, we as Americans did then, we cannot repeat it. And we cannot repeat it in part also because by the 1980s, the argument is, if there is such a thing as widespread trauma among soldiers who served in Vietnam, now veterans, the source of that trauma is not Vietnam itself. In other words, what happened on the killing fields and what they did on the killing fields of Vietnam, but the treatment they received when they come home. So one of the other really common sense conversations, and it exists in psych- among psychologists as well, is the homecoming is absolutely key to mitigating the effects, the psych- psychological effects of war. If you isolate people, if you make them feel like they were baby killers, that trauma is going to be worse. There's really no evidence, as far as I can tell, to support that, um, neither here or elsewhere. What is the sort? But it it's originates in that reconstruction, both what the what the place of veterans were in, in, in the anti-war movement, which was they are rendered invisible, and also what the so-called civilian veteran interaction was um, as a way of reconstructing what the American public proper attitude should be towards uh, troops and veterans of, of American wars, right? Yeah, and so it suggests, at least implicitly, that veterans' trauma is due to anti-war American civilians imposing a not real but neurotic guilt upon returning veterans. Patrick Hagopian talks about that in his book, The Vietnam War in American Memory. And he talks about what one begins to see as a shift in the 1980s where psychologists are, and psychiatrists are beginning to theorize that the source of the trauma of Vietnam vets is the hostile homecoming they received upon returning to the U.S. And one sees this in some of the, and I mean, I have confirmed this in some of the stuff I've read, written by psychologists and psychiatrists who worked with Vietnam veterans during the 1980s. You begin to see that explanation seeping back in or seeping into the conversation, which is the failure to reintegrate their hostile reception at home ultimately traumatizes these troops because they can't reintegrate into a civilian world that won't accept them, but treats them as baby killers and monsters. So you see the beginning of that even getting into a kind of psychiatric discourse, although it's not the only 
conversation. I think that's much more of a public kind of accusation and conversation in that period. You write about the, quote, conservative efforts to rewrite the history of the Vietnam War and its veterans uh, during the the 1980s Reagan Revolution. And in place of of this anti-war concept of post-Vietnam syndrome that we've been discussing that was developed by anti-war psychiatrists and vets, the militarist right became obsessed with a so-called Vietnam syndrome, which came to refer to popular American opposition to or skepticism of foreign wars, public sentiments that after Vietnam constrained the exercise of American imperial power, something that obviously these imperialist hawks really did not like. How did a post-Vietnam syndrome afflicting veterans become a Vietnam syndrome afflicting the U.S. as a whole? And what role did that play in redefining the war and U.S. defeat? And lastly, what did that mean for this ongoing redefinition of the traumatized soldier? I mean, Lifton, Robert J. Lifton, I actually did interview him, and he did say to me, it was just one of those moments where this notion, the post-Vietnam syndrome that was articulated as a radical critique of the war, gets inverted into Vietnam syndrome, which is a defense of U.S., in defense of U.S. militarism and interventionism abroad. I think the shift is symptomatic of what happens from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s, right? So already, so Nixon ends the draft. There's the attempt to reconstruct a more professional military. I mean, there is a recognition the military sort of fell apart and was not functioning the way it should have. But there's also a fear, which we see today, that the problem with the draft is not just, quote-unquote, you don't have well-trained soldiers, which is the line that one gets from the military we have you know, professional soldiers, we don't just want anybody. But that the that drafting a public is a political threat, ultimately, to the ability to sustain a war, because it will elicit more opposition, um, or potential political opposition to the war. So you have the beginning of that reconstruction of the military, and of why and how the US lost the war in, in Vietnam. And the argument becomes the U.S. did not lose the war on the battlefields. It lost the war on the home front because it lost the political will to let the military do what the military needed to do to win that war. And it lost that political will because of the power of the anti-war movement. So post-Vietnam syndrome becomes a way of naming this anti-war politics that really grew into a general, by the late 70s, there was a lot of opposition to, or the late 70s, the 1980s, a lot of opposition to the idea of U.S. intervention abroad. And one of the central places for that was, of course, Central America in the Reagan administration, where a lot of this is done, like, you know, secret operations that aren't quite so secret, but they're secret operations. So Vietnam, the Vietnam syndrome is basically a way of saying that American progressives have really lost a sense of American exceptionalism, of the importance of the American role in the world, and are sort of basically tying the administration's hands in terms of its ability to intervene abroad and to stave off communism, right? We're still in the Cold War and domino theory of politics. And that it's a syndrome is precisely that. It's sort of a pathology. It's not, right, the opposition to the war is not a coherent political position. It's a pathology 
that was born amongst the left in American society. Well, what ends up happening in the same period is there's an increasingly organized and vocal group of veterans who argue and publicly get the support of the Reagan administration and the larger conservative movement that this anti-war, anti-war veterans did not represent most veterans of the war, that they were proud of the war that they fought and that they had never been recognized for their service and for their valor, right? So you have a lot, the beginnings in the eight, late 70s and early 80s, you have all these parades like New York City and other places where you finally have the coming home parades for veterans of the war in Vietnam. You have the federal government's uh, commitment to build a Vietnam War Memorial. So basically you have within the veteran community, a different community that is now trying to reappropriate their own war as also a good war and a valiant war, right? And a war that they are owed, right? They are owed honor, which they never, which they never received. And the, and part of that argument is the, the sense that we're not all traumatized and crazy, right? Because if you think about the movie industry in the late seventies and the early eighties, right? You have a deer hunter, you have apocalypse. Now you have taxi driver, you have, Rambo, right? So there's a pushback against that image, which of course isn't just the image of a traumatized soldier, but a traumatized soldier who becomes like criminally violent and completely, like there's a berserk insaneness to it, which of course was not the argument of the psychiatrists and Vietnam veterans, but it becomes this kind of anti-hero figure that is both seducing and despicable, right? So A, there's a rejection of the idea that most Vietnam, that the figure of the traumatized soldier really is who the Vietnam veteran is. And then within that, there's a beginnings of a push that says, if there is trauma, it's because we were so badly treated on the way back. But trauma is, is, is still not a widely embraced or accepted idiom in this era. That comes a little later, right? So there's a, so the, the war in Vietnam is a breaking point, but there's a long haul before we get to the point where trauma is, you know, something, you know, that's just both kind of very common, but also something that, you know, men who fought in a war are likely to embrace as, oh, I suffer trauma, right? We're not there yet either, right? Alongside this, this militarist, right-wing militarist project, you write about two key movements that came to to reshape Americans' understanding of traumatic victimhood. First, the the conservative victims of crime movement, and second, the feminist anti-rape and anti-incest movement. And I and probably many listeners have read about the role of these movements in the rise of mass incarceration. But but how how did these movements redefine both clinically and popularly the figure of the traumatized subject and what and then like what society's duty was toward that subject? The feminist movement, right, in the 60s, 70s, they're really up against and into the 80s, right? The struggle really is both to recognize crime, I mean, sorry, to recognize rape and incest as crimes and to recognize that the child and or, and, and it's important to point out, obviously, boys and men can be raped or can be victims of incest. But in this period, the conversation is about girls and women pretty um exclusively. And that the women or girls who experience sexual assault of one variety or another are not themselves guilty, right? That kind of image of, well, what were you wearing for for women? Who else have you, what is your sexual past? 
Why were you walking down the street? And even the child, I mean, I often feel like there's not a whole lot in the world that shocks me. But when I was reading stuff that made clear that still well into the 70s, there was this discourse in psychology and that that somehow the daughter, you know, the eight-year-old whose father or uncle rapes her was somehow responsible or somehow seducing. I mean, so they really desperately needed the category of victim, unequivocally. And not victimhood is, I mean, children were victims. And women in this more radical feminist period, it's not that they were victims as a kind of, my identity is that I exist as a victim, but that they were victims of this particular crime of rape. So they draw on the work of, that comes out of people working um, like Robert J. Relifton work and, and post-Vietnam syndrome in the very particular sense of the early, one of the big changes in that period is understanding trauma as a response to an event, so-called, so-called outside the realm of normal human experience, right? So the women are traumatized by the event of rape or incest. They draw on that. But the difference, of course, is they cannot allow for the possibility of guilt, right? They're not guilty. They're not guilty either in an ontological sense, I mean, in an ontological sense or ontic guilt. So one ends up really solidifying the notion of PTSD as a response to life threat of the reality. of So many women in the process of being raped think they're going to die, is what they're saying, or perceive life threat. And absolutely and unequivocally, the question of innocence on the one hand and victimhood on the other, right? So they have that project, which they need both for psychiatric reasons. It's important you can't, right? How do you actually recognize trauma as something that needs to be treated in these women? And often even incest victims, it's women many years later. That's another thing they draw, which is the from the Vietnam period, which is the possibility of delayed onset trauma, which figures like Shatton and Lifton establish. And they need it for juridical reasons, right? The courts, they need the courts to recognize women and girls as innocent victims of a crime. At the same time, you have obviously the rise of the conservative movement, the Reagan revolution, and on its heels, well, the victims of crime movement starts earlier. Um, It starts in the 70s, but it really picks up steam with Reagan's rise to the White House or election to the White House in 1980. And 81, when he actually takes office. And the victims of crime movement really is a movement born of the rhetoric of law and order, right, which is born in the 60s as a way of reframing the civil rights movement and Black protest as a problem of disorder and crime and inner city crime. So basically, it, it is a white, largely white movement that's a backlash against the, the conception that the city, the public space, is just increasingly dangerous. You can't walk out without risk of rape or murder or theft or assault, et cetera. And when Reagan comes to office, he appoints uh, a task force to look into the rights of the victims of crime. And the argument of the movement and of the Reagan administration is that the the judiciary has moved too far in the direction of protecting the rights of criminals. These liberal judges uh, just care about just care about uh, coddling criminals and oh, poor them, not the actual victims of the crime. And not the actual victims of the crime. So they, part of that whole movement is also then the beginnings of 
talking about the psychological consequences of violent crime. So you begin to have conversations about the trauma of victims of crime. And in particular, not necessarily always in the language of trauma, but in the language of needing psychological first aid. So there's a movement within police departments to set up units where officers know how to deal with victims and their needs, including, quote unquote, their psychological needs. And one see out of that, one begins to have this notion of, you know, sort of psychological psychiatric first aid that in the wake of a mass murder, we see it today, right? In the wake of 9-11, you know, one of the first things that happens are psychologists and psychiatrists are brought to the scene of a school or of New York City, I don't know to treat the onset of trauma and to kind of interrupt it there. So you have this convergence between a feminist politics that is progressive, heavily a white movement, but a progressive white movement that is trying to shift both the conversation and the legal system vis-a-vis victims of rape and incest. But, and this is really important, but they're very clear that the vast majority of rapes are done by someone one knows. It's not the stranger in the street. And this victims of crime movement where this figure of the predator in the street, the urban street, it's not named black, but it is black, right? We know what urban stands for. And out of these these different movements and sort of the Reagan administration's support for the victims' rights movement, one begins to shift a kind of both public conversation about crime, but also a psychiatric one in which the feminist psychiatrists were really important figures or psychiatrists working on rape and incest. So that by the end of the 1980s and into the 1990s, the idea, the possibility of being perpetrated, of being traumatized by what one did, which in the 1980 iteration, which is the first iteration of PTSD in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it includes behavior necessary for survival. So necessary takes some a lot of the political edge of perpetration out, but it's still your actions. By the later 1987, and I think it's 1993 or four versions and revisions of PTSD, it's all about victimhood. It's about having been victim and having been experienced life threat or perceived life threat. And it's no longer, guilt is no longer an associated experience. Shame appears more centrally. Another key set of developments are taking place with in the field of psychiatry, particularly a shift away from psychoanalysis toward a biomedical model of mental illness. What what was the shift and when and why did it take place? What what did it entail ideologically and and also what were its material underpinnings? So that shift begins, it's in the early 70s that the American Psychiatric Association um, starts working on a revision to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, number two, which I think was, I want to say, released in 1968. Um, And there's a push there. They put Robert Spitzer in charge, and they put him in charge because he is not a psychoanalyst. He has a far more empirical or empiricist, for lack of a better term, um, understanding of psychiatric illness. He follows not Freud, but Kreplin, who's another German psychiatrist of the early 20th century. The issue is the mandate of the DSM-3, which is the third revision of the manual, is to align psychiatry more fully with other branches of medicine. So the issue becomes, becomes a kind of empiricist claim of what is it we can 
for one thing, what can we observe? So there are two things. You need diagnostic categories and to have clear diagnostic categories, which of course were completely not relevant in psychoanalysis. You need to be able to label them and you need to be able to list their symptomology. So most, almost every syndrome in the DSM-3 is a category and what are its symptoms because you need to know the symptoms and you need to be able to observe the symptoms in order to diagnose the disease, right? So you need clear disease entities the way you would apparently have in physiological other domains of medicine. PTSD is one outlier because it's the only place where you have etiology still, which is cause. You, there are clear symptoms, but you have to have experienced an event. So that's the one now. It's an event that is out in the world, but it's the one place that the DSM-3 still focuses on etiology and not symptomology. The reasons for that shift are complicated. I mean, there's clearly the push for a paradigm shift within psychiatry to align it more with medicine, but there's a part of that shift comes from the National Institute of Mental Health, where Congress is really wary of putting more and more money into the field of psychiatry when nobody can come up with a clear diagnosis or symptoms. It just seems too mushy. It doesn't seem scientific enough. As time, so that is a shift that you see in the DSM-3. It's basically the beginnings of the, the victory of psychiatric medicine over a psychoanalytic model of psychiatry. And you kind of see that marching forward. There are some compromises made in the DSM-3, but that's the direction that it's going in. It gets really solidified in some sense. Tanya Lerman argues in her book in, Of Two Minds that you really see the shift to this medical model. And one of the key terms becomes evidence-based medicine, right? So diagnoses have to be um, definable. They have to be repl replicable, and treatment has to be, you have to have some measure of their success, right? So it cannot be the kind of intuitive sensibility of a psychoanalyst who's worked with various patients long-term. There has to be some means of measurement. That turn, according to Tanya Lerman, t takes its like kind of, I don't know, I guess the death knoll as she would see it, or the death, whatever the word is, the death knell, that's what it is. The death knell of psychoanalysis is with the rise of uh, HMOs. Because to, in order to fund psychiatric treatment, they insist on specific diagnostic categories that align with the DSMs. Now we're into the DSM-4. And of course, they insist, they insist on defined treatment protocols, which means you cannot be in psychoanalysis for years on end. It has to have a protocol, it has to have a beginning, it has to have an end. You have to have the idea that there is the possibility of a cure at the other end. And of course, the other piece of the move to psychi psychiatry as medicine or as modeled on other branches of medicine more accurately is the rise of psychopharmacology. And it's in the early, like in the late 50s and the early 60s, you begin to have the first drugs like iterations of Valium, et cetera. And as that develops more and more, you move much more into a kind of biomedical understanding of the brain rather than the mind, which begins to structure, increasingly structure psychiatry as a field. To pause our story for a moment, where, where does this leave us in the 1990s, say, after the Reagan revolution and before the onset of the war on terror in 2001, in terms of how all of these developments have impacted both clinically and popularly 
the definition of of the traumatized subject, particularly the traumatized troop. And at this point, that being still, I think, primarily the traumatized Vietnam vet. The 90s are a moment where, you know, so in the book, I you can talk about it as a cultural common sense, and I refer to it as a trauma imaginary, by which I mean these sort of common sense assumptions about what trauma is, what causes it, and what kind of a subject, a traumatized subject is, the things we take for granted. I think that really takes hold in the 1990s. To begin with, the Clinton administration funds more expansive um, victims' rights programs, uh, including uh, sort of psychiatric outreach in police departments and other places. But I think what the thing is that by the 90s, the Vietnam veteran is clearly still there as a figure of a traumatized subject, but I think it really begins to flip towards the iconic figure being much more the woman who is a victim of rape or, well, the Holocaust survivor, right? There are all these figurations of the traumatized subject who are much more squarely victims. And one of the pieces of that, which developed from the 70s on through the 90s, is what this French historian Annette Viviorca calls the era of the witness. So what you get tethered together is trauma, often extreme trauma, in confrontation with, I mean, born of having experienced very extreme violence, right? And then the obligation to listen to the truth that this victim has learned, right? So I actually think by the 90s, by the time we get into 2001, the the most prominent cultural figure of the victim, I mean, of the traumatized subject, is much, has really moved away from the Vietnam figure. I mean, the Vietnam figure is there, but what trauma comes to signify is much more squarely a notion of victimhood. This is also sort of, you know, post-Cold War humanitarian intervention. The, I mean, people have written about this, right? The rise of um, emergency psychiatry by and groups like Médecins Sans Frontières, which started only with starvation, only with, star- with starvation and physical ailments, but then moves to think about the suffering subject, right? The victims of the Armenian, the massive Armenian earthquake, I want to say 1989, I could have the date wrong, where the, the psychological damage was understood as needing as much intervention as was sort of the um, physiological injury. So I think that becomes the important turning point is when we get to post 9-11, it's not that anybody, or not anybody, it's not that the general claim is explicit that soldiers suffering trauma are victims. Most soldiers and veterans wouldn't identify themselves this way. And because they're also heroic figures, they're what Royce Grant calls the trauma hero, they're not really categorized explicitly as victims, but their being their trauma in this figure exists and is discussed against the background of this common sense understanding of what trauma is, which is that it's born of victimhood, right? I mean, there's such a deep sense at this point in American culture that trauma is both ubiquitous and really is tethered to victimhood, right? Um, There's transgenerational trauma of the Holocaust or of slavery. There's the trauma of sexual assault. I mean, we can keep going and going, right? Um, And in all those positions, in all those narratives, one is not the perpetrator of violence. One is on its receiving end or having inherited it from people who are on its receiving end. This is the decade of the 
of the so-called new humanitarianism. That's that's both redefining the the purposes of U.S. military intervention in the language of, of human rights and also, as you write, quote, marking a transformation of left politics toward a focus on relieving human suffering rather than the fight for equality, justice, or material redistribution. So it's sort of a cultural milieu that's both redefining the language, remaking the language of American imperialism and remaking the language of the left that ostensibly exists to resist and oppose said imperialism. Right. It's the suffering subject. And one powerful image of that suffering subject is the traumatized subject. And when people who write critically about this new humanitarianism or humanitarian reason, people like Miriam Tickton or Didier Fassan, etc., they talk about this as a kind of post-political project. In other words, it conceives of itself as post-political. It's not about politics. It's about an ethics, right? An ethics to care. And it's to care for suffering, whether it's illness in the sense of HIV AIDS or, you know, to intervene in this, these motions, these uh, kind of instances of mass starvation or suffering born of war, which is both physical and psychological. So that figure of the suffering subject is a really key figure more broadly, and one iteration of it is the subject who suffers from trauma, from having been exposed to violence, exposed being or having experienced it being the key terms, right? Yeah, you write, quote, the name of the game is intervening in the moment of emergency in response to what Slava Zizek has named subjective violence, the spectacular violence, which is to say the more obvious or apparent violence, like a terrorist attack or the effects of an improvised explosive device. What is overlooked in such endless attention to the emergency, Zizek insists, is the objective or structural violence that undergirds it, the grinding poverty that capitalism of necessity generates, and, in this instance, the not unrelated imperial power and hubris that enables the United States to conduct its wars so very far from home. Not to get our set of, ahead of ourselves into the aughts, which is where we're going in, in in a minute, but this is like very much the perfect ethical sensibility for for the 1990s. Yeah, was it Fujimori? This is the end of history. The Cold War collapsed. The U.S. the kind of liberal capitalist order won, and now the language becomes kind of of you know the other language becomes stopping evil. If the 20th century was the century of evil, in other words. How did the Holocaust unfold, which is what occupies that center space? The humanitarian project, a piece of which, a slightly another branch of which is this right to protect, right? Or responsibility, sorry, RTP, responsibility to protect, is this commitment to start, stop evil before it begins. Why didn't, why wasn't the Rwandan genocide stopped before it began? Why did it take so long to intervene in Bosnia? And all of those are framed as non-political projects or post-political projects. It's in the name of humanity, in the name of human rights, and in the name of suffering, which isn't the same language as the name of political rights, right? The rights to citizenship, the right to asylum, because one is politically persecuted. That kind of language recedes, or that kind of possibility as a grounds for politics kind of recedes, Right. And it recedes in various places. One sees this in, and this is an aside which you can cut, but one sees this in the politics of Palestine where increasingly sort of there's this NGOization of the movement and the appeal on the international stage 
is in the language of Israel's violation of Palestinian human rights, not national rights, right? Human rights. This is all part of that piece of what is now understood to be obligation as an ethical obligation rather than an explicitly political one. That's taking the place of the PLO or say the for the you know Western left, the specifically the PLFP, as a subject of just revolutionary violence um, to be celebrated and, and solidarized with. Right. There's much less space for the possibility of just political violence that, or revolutionary violence that, in fact, the anti-war movement, part of the issue in the period of the Vietnam War is given, you know, the feminist movement, the civil rights movement, right, the black radical movement, that what the anti-war movement could recognize in the Vietnamese guerrilla movement a political project, right? It wasn't violence as terrorism. It was violence as tethered to a political project. And that could be and was understood to be legitimate. There's very little space for that once you get sort of further along and in the 90s, right? What is the violent, quote unquote, political movement or revolutionary movement that is not dismissed as mere terror, right? That becomes the much more common idiom. I'm Astra Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Sinking Middle Class, A Political History of Debt, Misery, and the Drift to the Right by David Rodiger. In The Sinking Middle Class, acclaimed historian David Rodiger skillfully challenges the save the middle class rhetoric that dominates our political imagination. The slogan misleads us regarding class, nation, and race, Rodiger argues, and talk of middle class salvation reinforces myths holding that the U.S. is a providentially white, middle-class nation. As Robin D.G. Kelly puts it, as the nation burns and the future appears uncertain, David Rodiger delivers another incisive, timely, clear-eyed analysis of class and race in America. His point is clear. Another world won't be built by pollsters or slick election strategies aimed at saving the middle class. We have to grow a movement. The Sinking Middle Class, A Political History of Debt, Misery, and the Drift to the Right by David Rodiger. Out now from Haymarket Books and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. With the onset of the War on Terror, and initially clinicians, Veterans Affairs, and the Department of defense all emphasize treatments known as prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. What were these treatments? Why did they become so dominant? And then more generally, why were such short-term and so-called evidence-based approaches so attractive to the military and psychodynamic approaches so frowned upon? So prolonged exposure and Cognitive behavioral is a version of a cognitive behavioral therapy, although it's a little different. These were both short-term treatments that were developed through the 90s, particularly, especially prolonged exposure therapy, but also versions of CBT that were for victims of rape. So a lot of the work 
in these evidence-based treatments for trauma, again, were modeled on the experience of a single incident, violent event. So Edna Foa is famous for creating this sort of prolonged exposure therapy. And the question was, one, the, the assumption is one is exposed to, it was for victims of rape, to this single, violent, very intimate experience, like intimate violence. The problem with treating it, in fact, is not going to be solved in sort of deep psychodynamic work, but in coming to terms with this event by, in fact, abating the affective response to it. So what CBT and prolonged prolonged exposure therapy share is both short-term treatment that is behavioral on some level. The cognitive behavioral tends to be more narrative in the sense of coming to terms with why do I feel guilty about X, but was it really my responsibility? So it also has effects on rape because many victims of rape feel that they were responsible. Prolonged exposure is more about kind of reliving and reliving and reliving the event until, by re-narrating it usually, until you can do it without the kind of panic or fear response that you have. But these are both short-term therapies. They seem to be relatively uh, effective in terms of like single incident violent exposures. They both understand, well, prolonged exposure more than CBT are also very clear that trauma resides in the body. So what you're trying to also unlearn is the physiological response. Now, why the, these are sort of standards of care for PTSD or considered by the time that uh, wars in 2001 begin. And I think there are various reasons. Again, there's partly a very different understanding of, of psychiatry, um, which is less about the mind and more about the brain. So, you know, they require clear diagnoses and a clear treatment protocol. They are covered by insurance. They are short term. So they're, you know, and they fit into a kind of psychiatric paradigm. And there really has long been a claim, and actually it's not, I'm not contesting the claim, but that in fact, more psychodynamic treatments have never been all that effective with treating trauma or anxiety disorders, for example. The question that gets complicated is when it's not a single incident trauma, but long-term abuse, for example. The question of whether psychodynamic therapy, for example, is more appropriate for incest, I think is a different conversation. It's a very particular understanding of trauma as an event comes in from the outside and you model it on that. So I think to begin with, Military medicine is part of the larger, obviously, paradigms, and including of psychiatry, that this is American psychiatry at this moment. I mean, the other thing, obviously, is these kinds of cognitive behavioral therapies are often done together with, psycho with pharmaceutical interventions as well. So you have a whole psychiatric paradigm that is working on this brain, brain and brain-mind kind of relationship. But, you know, post 9-11, this comes to a head in a very different way. It's incredible. So um, Aaron Finley was an anthropologist, wrote a book based on fieldwork in a VA in, I want to say, it was in Texas, I can't remember exactly where. And it's really in the mid-aughts that she sees the real transition in VA treatment from more psychodynamic. I mean, they're also using pharmaceuticals, you know, interventions, but long-term care, understanding PTSD, and this is mostly with Vietnam War veterans still, as an ongoing project of care because there's really no end point. It's like a chronic condition to a moment where more and more troops are coming back from 
the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're seeing higher and higher incidences of PTSD. Um, they're now veterans. They have to be treated by the VA. And it's just not sustainable, right? They don't have the staffing and they don't have the money to keep people in treatment treatment for years on end. So they start hiring. One of the conditions of being hired in the VA puts this out as a requirement is everyone has to be trained in these CBT um, therapies. Again, partly it's a belief in evidence-based medicine that there that there is evidence that these pr- protocols work that is not merely anecdotal. Um, they do measurements, right? Control measure like go through the treatment. They measure your scale of PTSD on these measurement scales before and after. And also, fiscally, it's just not sustainable to have people in years-long programs versus what are basically usually 12, maybe 15 sessions, right? So I think the reasons are both um, substantive and financial for the shift. As the war on terror ground on, you write, that that researchers began to push beyond these these things that have become sort of the orthodoxies around battlefield trauma and its treatment. Clinicians began to explore explore the idea that the meaning of a traumatic event mattered and even that the very source of trauma could extend well beyond any sort of discrete event at all. And then, most interestingly, the notion of the traumatized perpetrator, the soldier the soldier traumatized by what they had done began to reemerge in the guise of what's called moral injury. But but it reemerged, you write, without that political critique that had accompanied post-Vietnam syndrome. But before we get into all that, why, first, why did clinicians and, and the larger military system within which they're embedded, why did they feel compelled when they did to expand their understanding and treatments for trauma? I mean, it's been growing. I think the first published paper was probably around 2010, maybe a little bit earlier. So it was a group of psychologists in very various VA locations and some psychiatrists, and I am using that distinctly, someone in the Marines, et cetera, who basically began to, that the inspiration was, you know, not unsimilar to what happens with Lifton and Chatton and the rest of Eggendorf in the 70s. They're listening to their patients, although this is in much more formal clinical settings, and coming to realize that the protocols that exist, these prolonged exposure and CBT protocols, aren't working because their understanding of what the source of the trauma is or what is actually misleading. So, the, you know, by the 90s, it's very clear that PTSD is a condition of victimhood. It's born of fear, fear of death quite centrally, but the affect of fear and loss of control and paralysis, all these things that go along with it is not what they're they're often hearing. They're hearing people who are talking about guilt, not shame, guilt for having done something like killed a kid, sometimes in the middle of battle, sometimes, I mean, not necessarily in other words, as a deliberate, but, you know, shooting. So the, one of the classic things becomes, you know, in Iraq in particular, a car is coming out of roadblock. You tell them to stop. You tell them to stop. They don't stop. You shoot up the car. You get there and realize you've just shot up a family. They're hearing these kinds of stories and they're hearing stories about sort of less, expl- I mean, less spectacular 
spectacularly violent, right? Breaking into people's houses, holding, you know, the family at gunpoint while they search and just feeling the sort of what it means to terrorize a family, right? But also, they're also hearing a lot of stories about kind of grief and guilt about having lost a buddy on the battlefield. And it brings back a lot of the issues that were raised by the psychiatrists in the 1970s, both again, what they called the trauma of perpetration, although the language of perpetration is not here, and I will come back to that, but also what Hai Schatten called the grief, um, impacted grief, the inability to mourn the loss of your, you know, battle buddy who you experience in this kind of intense, intimate way as a member of the family. So the prolonged exposure and CBT therapies that existed have protocols that do the following. Either you're trying to relive and relive and relive an experience to the point where your fear, that affect of avoidance and fear gets tenuated. So, you know, let's say I was assaulted in a parking lot right? I can no longer go to a parking lot at night. How does one get to the point where can, one can relive a kind of what would be a normal quotidian life without that anxiety, avoidance, etc.? Or in cognitive behavioral therapy, it's often been, well, okay, so, you know, take the classic accusation against a rape victim. Well, what did you do? Did you lead him on, right? It's a question of coming to realize well, I'm not really responsible. This is misplaced guilt. But maybe that's not what they're facing. And as one of the psychologists said to me, the problem with telling them it's misplaced guilt is you're not letting them own their guilt. And they want to own their guilt. They don't want to be told that they're, ugh, you know, that they're not really responsible. And in his language, it's, they don't want to be told that not, not in the, perf- just in the, or not even necessarily, in the profound sense that Lifton understood real or ontic guilt, that one really has perpetuated harm in the world, but in his language also because the military is a place of responsibility. You are responsible for your actions. There's an entire ethic and culture in the military, but you can't just keep saying to somebody you're not responsible. So you can't deny their reality. And the most important thing about this is what if their primary responses are not fear and paralysis and avoidance? And right? It's something else. It's feelings of guilt or it's feelings of shame that are not separable from guilt or it's feelings of grief that they cannot, they cannot mourn in the, in a way that would allow them to move on, right? And so these protocols aren't working. They're not working because they're misunderstanding the nature of trauma born of war. And, and I want to be clear that some of this is really tethered to a notion that all soldiers are combatants, but some of it's not. Because then the non-event stuff, sometimes the trauma is born of, you know, you're away from home too long and there's deprivation and there's all sorts of fear. I mean, in other words, there's also just, it's impossible to reduce this trauma to a single incident trauma. That's the other thing. There are multiple events. There are multiple things that are happening or there are multiple strains on the soldiers who are, spending more and more time on these rotations and who keep going back and going back and going back, right? Because the issue of having a, quote, professional army is you can't keep drafting people to fight the war. You have to keep sending the same troops back into the theater of operations. 
And the evidence suggests the more tours of duty people do, the higher the risks of psychiatric breakdowns and trauma in particular is, because there's a kind of cumulative effect. So you have all these complications that don't fit into either the formal definition of PTSD that gets reduced to like in language of the you know, condition of victimhood, but also the patterns or the protocols for treating it, which are tethered to very particular understandings of what the event was and what one's, one's role in the event was and what one's response to the event is affectively. To pause and underline something you just said there, very few soldiers actually see combat. I think it's maybe like 10%. Yes. It's a, I don't know the number, to be fair, but it is not the majority. The thing that gets complicated is if you're part of the logistical command and you're moving stuff around and you're driving around Iraq and Afghanistan and you're hitting road bombs, right, IEDs, it's not combat, but it is exposure combat. to violence. So right. it's not that there's a clear black and white, but, you know, there are all sorts of people who, who are in the press office, right? I mean, Phil Cly, who's one of the most famous veterans, affair, right, veteran writers, was not, right? He was in the public relations office, right? There are lots of people who are not going, quote unquote, outside the wire, right? But who still get incorporated into both this figure of the trauma hero or the hero, but on the other hand, also have different kinds of exposures that can lead them to experience trauma. We just went over why military clinicians found shortcomings in these sort of narrow evidence-based forms of understanding, so-called evidence-based forms of, of understanding and treating combat trauma. Why, how then did this new idea of moral injury, this figure of the traumatized perpetrator, how did it get resurrected in, in this way that foreclosed the very sort of questioning of the violent acts that were actually perpetrated that was so characteristic of post-Vietnam syndrome? I think it gets, so moral injury is first as a term used by um, Jonathan Shea, who actually worked with Vietnam veterans, and he worked at the Boston VA. And his understanding is really a different wording of the notion of transgressive per perpetrator violence. Although he understands it in a very particular way, which is betrayal by command, because Vietnam was soldiers were feeling betrayed by the officers that were rotating in and out of the field. The important thing is that he, again, understood healing from moral injury as inseparable from understanding the politics of the war and sort of engaging in what he called, not necessarily anti-war activism, but democratic participation, right? It gets resurrected and it gets resurrected in a way that A, integrates it into evidence-based medicine. So the question is developing protocols that are still short-term, that are a combination of prolonged exposure and with some extra pieces added to deal with the specificity of moral injury. The shift that becomes really important, which is why when I said they do not talk about perpetration, is the following. The shift is to say if for, the, if for Lifton and the rest of them during the Vietnam era, the language was one of atrocity, the language now is one of killing is part of what you do in warfare. It's part of the business. It's like really not just part of what you do in warfare. You are trained in the military to be able to kill. This is part of your job. And the problem is 
beginning to recognize and needing to recognize explicitly that what you are trained to do can also damage you, injure you psychologically and morally. So the, the political effect gets taken out because this is now integrated into both the military itself, not just moral injury, but any kind of PTSD treatment, because moral injury is not formally recognized, but some of its assumptions that there are other kinds of events that can traumatize soldiers has begun to be integrated into PTSD, narratives of PTSD and their treatment even within the military. But A, you need to treat trauma because it is one of the injuries that emerge from war. And if we don't treat it and figure out how to help people move through it, we're not going to be able to keep soldiers and Marines, et cetera, in the military. So it really is integrated into the business of war. It is not to say that it is not, it is in no way stigmatized in the military to have PTSD. It is not to say that it can't ruin your career. It's just to say in comparison to any earlier era, it is integrated into a kind of medical understanding of the risks of going to war. And you see the same thing in the VA. It's part of the risk of of going to war. It doesn't mean you are doing something wrong because this is what you are trained to do and this is what you have to do when you are in the military. And I want to be clear, killing is not the only source of moral injury, but it's considered the most toxic possible source. But it's not an atrocity. It's not perpetration. Because once you say perpetration, you're assuming someone did something wrong. The other piece of it is that it become what it means also to, for this to be part of the business of war is to say that there's a whole moral culture within the military, that the military is a moral institution, that people are trained according to the laws of war and the op- codes of operation, and that that is a moral structure, and that soldiers, I mean, military personnel interiorize those structures very deeply. And so when they violate them, and they may have to violate, when they can't live up to them, they feel this intense sense of having failed morally. But it's all contained with this this idea that there's a culture of the military. Within the military, on the one hand, killing is not wrong. It may be necessary. But there may also be ways in which even what is necessary is not something you can live with. But it's all contained with this idea of the military and war being its own kind of cultural and moral space. But then you confront enemies who have their own well, non-moral ways of fighting, so to speak. One thing that jumps out to me there before we move on is this idea that it's been integrated into the job of war, that being a soldier is a, a job, something you return to time and again in the book. And it's almost like an occupational health and safety framework, as though there's like an echo there of, you know, desk workers who spend a lot of time on email can can get carpal tunnel. But it is a job. I mean, that's the problem. That's one of the framings of the conversation about the military, that's a problem, which is whether it's the ads, you know, be your best self and learn to be an engineer or sort of the conversation among, you know, anthropologists, which is, or I was at a thing at Columbia where somebody uh, who was who was a student in GS and a former Marine recounted a story, you know, another apocryphal story. I have no idea how often this also happens, but another apocryphal story of a fellow student asking him, did you kill anyone? And of course, everyone's mortified. Now, it's not a question I would ask. I'm not sure it's a completely unreasonable question. Depends on who's asking it and why and 
right? Was that person Iraqi? I mean, I can imagine all sorts of reasons you might ask the question, but his response was, I mean, God, they don't even know. I mean, the military is just like another job. You could just be an engineer. It's not like everybody's going out. And I thought, wow, it's not just another job. Even if you're an engineer in the military, what are you building those tanks for, right? But that is such a common response, right, to a kind of the profession of the military, right? That it's a job. It's, right? And for people, I'm not saying for people it is not a job or that they don't get training they wouldn't get elsewhere for various complicated economic reasons. But the fact that we just want to say it's just another job with its own hazards is a serious political and ethical problem, right? The term to describe the, the military's imperative to to ensure that its fighting force is reproduced, that their massive soldiers is ready to deploy and wage war that you referenced just a few minutes back is force protection. And you write, quote, at bottom, the concern here is with force protection, that is, ensuring an adequate supply of healthy military personnel to carry out decades-long wars in an era in which a military draft is out of the question. There are also echoes here of a particular techno-scientific fantasy, that one might find a way to conduct war while averting, in advance, its damaging psychological consequences. You also write, quote, In a discourse that passes over the military's primary concern with force protection in favor of talk of a national moral obligation, those so-called invisible injuries are examined and explained to the public at large, so they can be understood and healed, so that proper attention to the war is paid on the home front. How has the extreme length of these wars and the political impossibility of a draft, how has that all shaped the politics and imperative of, of troop protection? And how has that in turn, shaped this clinical approach to trauma into the specific ways that our Amer- that Americans are are conditioned to pay attention to the war. Because it seems like there's a uh, one layer of force protection, which is quite literally making sure that these you know soldiers are quote unquote he- quote unquote healthy enough to deploy, but also sort of reproducing the more fundamental underpinnings of that force protection, which is is this popular acquiescence to to militarism. That's a very good way of putting it. So the length of the wars has clearly been, and it wasn't clearly for a long time, especially when the U.S. was still in Iraq and big fighting forces in Afghanistan, a serious problem, right? People were going, I mean, one of the the, some of the studies on the mental health of uh, military personnel, they kept going back year after year. By the time people were on their fifth deployments, the risk of P- PTSD and other kinds of serious psychiatric illnesses was going up and up, right? People were going on these long deployments. The lengths of the deployments were being extended, and they were kind of rotating in and out and in and out. With that, right, so basically the argument made has been by people who know more than me or military people that, right, the professional, the all-volunteer force, so-called, was not designed to sustain two decades of war in two major theaters of war, right, let alone all the other special ops in the other 80-whatever locations that they pop down. You have a real problem of recruiting enough people into the military, keeping them in the military. So in an earlier era, it would have been easier to kind of just, you know, throw people out for 
PTSD or other things. But here, I think the, the emphasis on trying to keep people within the force is important. And again, I don't, I want to be clear, I think military psychiatrists generally do care about the patients they're treating. But I think the, the actual institutional commitment is much more about trying to get having enough of a force to deploy when necessary and on command. Now, that has actually affected the actual treatment of PTSD and or moral injury, although they don't call it moral injury, within among active duty personnel, because one of the moves in the last 10 years has been to figure out, so prolonged exposure therapy, for example, is usually about 12 to 13 sessions. And I think CBT is also about 12 to 14, usually done once a week, right? They've been experimenting with doing what they call intensive short-term. So can you do it in 10 sessions, not 14? Can you do it within a two-week period, not a 10-week period? And the reason is because the deployment cycles are too unpredictable to and too short, right, rotating to, to be able to commit to somebody to be on base for 12 to 14 weeks. So the, there's this whole star... Um, Strong Star Consortium that has been doing all this work federally funded. And one of the things they focused on in the kind of last 10 years was whether one can shorten the protocols and whether they will still be effective. There's big debates about whether they're effective at all, but if they're shortened, is the outcome similar? Because it has to, it has to mesh more seamlessly with the kind of nature of military life that does not always give you the time to stay home for 14 weeks, let alone three months, right? Now, how it plays out with force protection, as you put it, in the sense of acquiescence to the military, I think that that is where one gets into this question of the so-called civil-military divide, and therefore the kind of moral obligation that American civilians, as they are called, which basically means the American public that has not gone to war owes those that have. And that, you know, there's been a, there's an incredible proliferation at some point. Again, I would say this was at its height between probably 2010 and 2015, maybe a little later, which is journalists doing either books or long form journalism on the trauma amongst returning troops and veterans, novelists, um, again, as I've said, TV, and it's not just, you know, whatever, the Huffington Post, you see stuff, increasing coverage, even on conservative news sites about the psychological toll on the troops. And the, re and the kind of rhetoric that then gets produced is that, that one has to listen without judgment, that one has to care, um, that this is what they are suffering for having gone off to war and that the conversation one has to have is about their suffering, but not about the war, that one needs to bracket that conversation. Um, and it really circles back, I think, in ways that are unarticulated, back to this larger kind of culture of trauma thing in which one has to listen to the victim who is also the witness to the truth of what happened. You have to li but in this instance, you're not listening to the victim, you're actually listening to someone who's in a much more complicated position to victimhood, right? They're not the generals in general, although the although the discourse about you have to listen without judgment applies to everyone from the 18-year-old who went in, apparently, to the special ops forces who's been in and out and is in their 40s, right? There's no 
disentangling levels of responsibility. But what are we listening to? And is their accounting of the war really the truth of war? Or is it their truth of war? And what are we not able then to ask or to discuss? Right? And quite clearly, the question of focusing on the destruction that is wrought and has been wrought across Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan and then Yemen and all these other places with drone warfare and special ops is not part of the conversation because the conversation becomes about the afterlifes of four soldiers, American troops of war, right? One thing that occurs to me is why such intense interest in the figure of the traumatized ground troop at a moment when American military and imperial power has become so increasingly characterized by air power, like specifically people who are not on the ground and maybe are operating a joystick in, in Nevada. Well, there, I have two answers to that. One is, for a long time, I mean, there were about 2 million, I'm going to say, 2.1 million troops that did rotate in and out of the war zone, right? So part of the thing is there's also this sort of ongoing conversation in people, academics and others who talk about and theorize war that that we're on some simple linear trajectory away from troops on the ground to more and more and more and more remote forms of warfare. But that was the prediction before the 9-11 war started, right? And that was the prediction when, particularly when the Bush administration went to Iraq, you know, in, out, it's over. But that's not how the wars unfolded. So to be right, they kept having to put more and more and more troops on the ground, both in Iraq and then in Afghanistan. They still couldn't control and they still couldn't control, right? So to begin with, there are many, many, many people. There are millions of people who actually rotated in and out of the war zones. Now, some of them were on the you know forward operating bases. Some of them weren't. But it was not a war fought primarily remotely in those locations, right? Drone warfare, well, and then you have the other piece before we even get to Air Force, there's a lot of special ops project, right? Like in Syria now and in Iraq and apparently still in Afghanistan, someone who did work with special ops people told me and in various parts of Somalia, et cetera. So they are, there may be quote unquote a light footprint, but they're on the ground. And those people have, you know, been on, you know, 30, 40 rotations. There's a lot of talk about what's going on there and what the psychiatric consequences of that are going to be. Um, and there seems to be an increasing uh, discourse that's a little more Rambo-esque, like what's happening here, right, as these special ops troops keep doing things. Some pretty wild reports about behaviors among special operation soldiers. Well, they're on the ground constantly, right, mm-hmm. as in these right rotating things. So, But then if you think drones and distance, you know, it's complicated. There's also a growing discourse about drone warfare and trauma and PTSD, which actually distills the problem down to its absolute essence, which is if you're a drone operator, there is no risk to your person, quite clearly. So if you are experiencing trauma, it is absolutely the trauma of perpetration. And there's more and more conversation about that. Now, it's a controversial. It's controversial within the military. It's controversial. Like, how can you you're sitting in a thing in Nevada? How dare you? But the argument is not is the same as the argument for moral injury, which is you're sitting in this trailer. You're observing people often for long periods of time. You see their families and their kids, and then you kill them, right? That there's something about that 
distance that in fact, in some ways makes it more traumatizing. That's the argument, or not more traumatizing, but that is decidedly traumatizing because you're not at risk in any way. So it distills the act down to the pure act of killing, right? So while some people say, oh, it's like playing a video game, um, it's really not clear at all that it's experienced as play, trauma or not. It's not clear at all that it's experienced as a video game. That's a kind of misreading. So that doesn't displace that, but it does displace somewhat the question of being the hero, right? It's very hard to have the same kind of heroic, I stepped up, the kind of grunt. That image of the grunt is really stands at the center and it stands at the center of war literature, right? As if it is the grunt, who is the witness to war. But again, most military personnel are not the grunt, even if they end up writing as veteran writers from that perspective. But that's the perspective, right? That's the idea. That's the figure of the soldier that is in an American imaginary, right? Not just an American imaginary. You write summarizing mainstream accounts of today's U.S. military, quote, this is not Vietnam, Today's military is well-resourced, well-trained, and well-led. Among psychiatrists and psychologists working with military or ex-military personnel in the post-9-11 era, there is a strikingly different understanding of an attitude towards the military as an institution. In, in fact, and you, you've referred to this uh, already in the interview, there's, there's this general belief that the U.S. military is an institution of higher-than-average moral sensibilities, that, the US, that U.S. troops thus thus adhere to to a notably high-level sort of moral code. Before we get into all the implications of these discourses, how did it even come about? Many people today might might take it for granted, but this is a very different thing than the U.S. military's reputation, say, half a century ago. So, again, I, I don't know that I can give an incredibly detailed account of how it came about, but it was a very conscious project of reconstructing, as part of the conservative revolution, one had to not just reconstruct the military, literally, one ends the draft, you have to build a professional institution, quote unquote. But also one had to reconstruct the kind of attitude towards the military, right? That had had been destroyed for many Americans during the American war in Vietnam. So what Jennifer Middlestadt, traces this really well in a book called The Rise of the Military Welfare State, that what one sees in the 80s is just as the Reagan revolution, quote unquote, is rolling back welfare and other benefits for most, quote unquote, ordinary citizens, it's instituting what she calls the military welfare state. And part of, in other words, you go into the military, you get money for education, you get health care. Increasingly, they take care of the whole family you get housing. And the argument that is quite explicit among military officers and the Reagan administration is that these are the ideal citizens. So you have a kind of iconography that emerges around the soldier who steps up and then who gets all these benefits for having stepped up at a moment of retraction of the welfare state in other domains. And as Jennifer Middlestadt points out, right, all sorts of things that in the U.S. you only get if you join the military healthcare being key, you know, in allied European countries, that's a right of citizenship. It's not just the right of citizens who serve in the military. Yeah, like you get the NHS if you join the military, or not as good as the NHS, maybe NHS in crisis, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, you don't just get like universal health coverage, you get a universal 
state health system. Right. So there's a sort of entitlement. I mean, it's an entitlement program that is entitled an entitlement sensibility that is both symbolic and material, right? Symbolically, again, do I think soldiers returning from war should get the institute medical and psychiatric care that they need? Of course. Do I think that they are more deserving of medical and psychiatric care than members of the American public who can't afford insurance? I don't. But that is really built into a kind of political grammar at this point in the U.S. You can't question that not just that they have the right, but they have a right that exceeds anybody else's right. And then, the you know, I, I don't have an easy answer. I think the war, the humanitarian, quote unquote, interventions in the 90s really help to consolidate that image that the U.S., when it goes in, so it goes into Serbia or whatever, you know, Kosovo, or the, the idea of intervention becomes tethered to a selfless act rather than any kind of national self-interest. I think that image of Western militaries, not just the American, but in general, really helps to solidify some notion of a kind of moral institution, right? You're sending soldiers to die, not or potentially die, not for, um, think about also Somalia and Mogadishu, not for quote unquote U.S. national interests apparently, but purely out of human rights and humanitarian concerns. I think that that, you know, helps solidify that. And then there's a sort of constant argument that the military itself is not political, that the politicians are making the decisions and the military is is carrying them out. So the responsibility falls solely on the politicians and the civilians. It's a civilian-controlled military, but, you know, it's not a solely on X problem. So I think there are all these things that come up. But for me, one of the most astounding kind of embodiments or instances of the notion of how moral the military is despite any what they have actually done over nearly 20 years at that point was, you know, when Trump comes into office and the three generals that surround him, these were the masterminds of the counterinsurgency warfare project of in projects in Afghanistan and Iraq, which were complete disasters, right? For the countries, let alone for the U.S. military. And even liberals are sitting around and saying, oh, thank God, at least there are adults in the room. We trust the military not to do X, right? Really, adults in the room? They should be tried as war criminals. I mean, half of what went on in these places. So there's a kind of sense that no matter what, there's no responsibility, right? No matter what, they're professional, they do things right. Things may have gone awry, but that's not their responsibility, right? I mean, it makes no sense in the middle of these disastrous wars to think, that the generals in the room are what are going to protect American democracy from Trump. Didn't make sense to me, at least. Whereas Trump's getting at something perhaps more honest uh, when he says that he loves having generals around who who cinematically look the part. Right. And yes, on the <laughs> one hand, yes. You know, in the end, it was quite clear that the military was not going to suborn a Trumpian coup. But, but, and I think this is key, it doesn't matter what the U.S. military does abroad. It doesn't matter what the generals suborn abroad. What makes them more, but they will be moral figures no matter what. They may be willing to protect the Constitution at home and still wage these imperial wars abroad, And right? But nobody cares about what happens on the other side of the Atlantic. That's not where we 
look to understand what the U.S. military is or does or what it embodies. The focus is here. Nadia Abouelhaj is a professor of anthropology at Barnard College in Columbia University, co-director of the Center for Palestine Studies, and the author of Combat Trauma, Imaginaries of War and Citizenship in Post-9-11 America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, moving from its home, where it assumes respectable form, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Fierio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, also please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you just spreading the word about the pod to people you know. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.